Good morning. I'm Carrie Miller. Glad you're listening to NPR News. This hour, this virus has created two epidemics, one of illness and one of misinformation. And that means that public health leaders, infectious disease specialists, and we in the media have spent a lot of time knocking down stuff that is simply wrong, and yet a lot of misinformation persists. It persists so stubbornly that where you find deeply conservative parts of the country who are getting their news from conservative sources, you'll find lower vaccination rates and a higher incidence of hospitalization and mortality, particularly as the Delta variant spreads. So this isn't just academic. This hour, how you can fact check for misinformation about the virus and the vaccines, and how to share the facts with someone who is misinformed. As our guests join us, are you encountering information online about the virus or the vaccines that is confusing to you, and you're looking for a fact check, you're looking for good sources of information? Are you encountering people who are skeptical of the facts or openly resistant to them? What do you do about that? Maybe that's family members. Maybe that's friends in your circle who are still confused, still seeing misinformation and misunderstanding the facts about the vaccines in particular, which is really important to understand the facts of it. So hearing this morning from where to find good information about this and whether you're encountering misinformation online and then what to what to say, how to have a conversation with people who are steeped in some of that misinformation but are looking for the facts. Here's the phone number, 651-227-6000, 800-242-2828. You can tweet in at Kerry, K-E-R-R-I, M-P-R. Professor Bertha Hidalgo is with us, an associate professor in the Department of Epidemiology at the University of Alabama at Birmingham, and with us from Birmingham. And Professor, welcome. It's really good to have you on the show. Thank you so much for having me this morning. Dr. Lisa Maragakis is with us, an associate professor of medicine and epidemiology, a physician and senior director of infection prevention at Johns Hopkins and with us from Baltimore. And Dr. Maragakis, welcome to you. It's good to have you on the show. Thanks so much for having me. Professor Hidalgo, I want to talk to you first about this because Alabama is notably low in vaccination rates. Has that improved over the last week? What's the situation right now in your state? That's uh, that's a good question. Uh, unfortunately, we have seen very low rates of vaccination so far. They do appear to be trending upwards, especially, I would say, in the last couple of weeks. Uh, some of the data from the University of Alabama at Birmingham suggests that in our clinics, we saw a doubling of our daily average um, in the last week or two. In fact, um, early to mid-July, we were seeing about 80 vaccine appointments or vaccinations a day. And this past week, we were averaging between 140 and 150 per day. So it's a Mm -hmm. good improvement, I think, a a trend in the right direction. And just a a follow on that, Professor, is do you put the the low vaccination rate down to public uh, health officials? The message is not reaching the people it needs to reach. 
State leaders like the governor have not emphasized this enough. They've been lax in some of these mask mandates. It's the spread of misinformation. What would you say is the reason Alabama is lagging? That's the million-dollar question, I think. Um, you know, our, our Governor K.I.B. has um, really messaged that it is important to get vaccinated. So I think that has been uh, an important message to share with the people of Alabama. I really think that there is, uh, as you know, a severe infodemic that we are fighting alongside the virus. And Mm -hmm. I do think that a lot of people are receiving information that is based in half-truth and that the overwhelming amount of information can make it very confusing for people that don't understand the science well, especially with respect to how SARS-CoV-2 spreads. What is Delta? Is it a new virus? I think that people have a lot of legitimate questions about what's going on. And often it takes conversations with people in order to clear up some of that confusion. And those are really hard to have one-on-one with everyone in the state. Right. Um, and right. so I think there is a lot of mistrust. Uh, I think there's a lot of confusion and we are working, several of us at UAB and others, other organizations in the state, to try and reach people where they are and have these conversations. So I think there is a group of people that is just unsure and um, maybe has a little bit of hesitancy, but not completely against vaccination. Those are the people that we want to reach at this time. Got it. Yeah. Dr. Maragakis, I saw a poll over the weekend that that really echoes what Professor Hidalgo is saying, that people will, the hesitant, the resistant, will trust messaging coming from their own physicians when they distrust it coming from public health leaders or Dr. Fauci in D.C. That's such a challenge, though, to get, you know, so many individuals into a physician's office to have that conversation. What else do you see And what are the opportunities, do you think, when you see polling like that and you're hearing opinion like that? What does that mean? Carrie, you're so right that people are more open to messages and information from trusted sources. And of course, their own physician uh, is a very trusted um, source of information that can be extremely helpful. Uh, But you've pointed to the challenge that that we have, which is having those one-on-one conversations with each individual takes a a great uh, amount of time. And there may not be the opportunity always to have those conversations right now in a timely fashion. So other strategies include community leaders, organizations, um, faith-based groups can be extremely good partners for public health to disseminate messages, to organize um, vaccination opportunities, and really to share with um, uh, with their communities and their members uh, accurate information, as well as um, facilitating uh, just the opportunity to, to get those vaccines into arms. And so Johns Hopkins uh, has been partnering with um, members of our community and faith-based organizations 
and um, and have has seen a lot of success in increasing our vaccination rates in the communities surrounding uh, our hospital and health system. I, I want to note for for listeners here who are concerned about where to go to get the most updated and accurate information. I use Johns Hopkins reporting on this, so they have a a terrific resource of information about the virus and the vaccine. So that's one of the good sources, and I want to let you know some other places through the course of the conversation here. To Mark in Minneapolis. Mark, uh, really appreciate you waiting. What's your question? What's your story? Uh, My story is my brother has traveled recently to and from Italy, and it's just shocking to me that in the course of those travels and returning, he contracted COVID and mm. uh, kept it under the radar to for about 12 days. And mm. so much so that he needed to be, uh, he needed to go to an ER and ended up getting a steroid, probably something similar to the previous president got to mm-hmm. help reverse things. In the course of his, his uh follow-up treatment, he's concluded with his family, uh, Christian fundamentalists, that ivermectin and hydrochloroquine would be the essential means of care. Those things need to be disproven in the shrillest, strongest of ways, as well as America's frontline doctors, who they also conclude are, you know, a, a, a legitimate source of medical information. Those things need to be disproven in the most unequivocal of ways possible. And, and you know, they're not going to doctors. The notion oh. of, of people like these going to doctors, it's, it's as if I'm dealing with a cult. And it's scary because it's, you know, it's incredibly divisive, you can imagine. Uh, you've really brought up something that I think Professor Hidalgo referenced. Professor, when you said a little earlier uh, it is confusing when you heard messages about like hydrochloroquine, as as Mark has suggested, from mm-hmm. the, the former president, from other people online and in right wing media it is hard to what, what would we say reverse uh, that kind of messaging months later, even though there's a lot of information and research out there about how these drugs were not very effective. Uh, I, I, I think that's what you were suggesting, that that is really difficult to deal with. Oh, absolutely. I, I think um, you, you, you're dealing with the fact that, in many cases, these are trusted sources for the public. And so, you know, the, the perpetual messaging of the same idea for example, that ivermectin works or that hydrochloroquine works is really hard to dispel. In addition, that pseudoscience has penetrated many blogs and social media accounts. It is all over TikTok. And so when you speak to Gen Z and millennials and other people, you'll hear that there are pockets of the social media platforms where you can get that messaging exclusively about ivermectin or about hydrochloroquine. And it, and it has persisted over time, despite the fact that in academic literature, it has been 
proven to not be effective, um, that it doesn't work, it doesn't help people, and that they should not take and or seek these drugs. And so when people say, I don't know who to believe, Mm -hmm. they truly don't know who to believe because the majority of the population in the U.S. doesn't have a uh, scientific method training, right? And so it's very difficult to learn the scientific method, apply it to all of the information that is forthcoming, and then make informed decisions for themselves and their families. And and yet, though, Dr. Maragagas, you know, people with experience online know you know, how to search out just about any question that they, they want answered. You know, what are the Kardashians doing these days? You know, what, what's the latest fashion trend? I don't know that I'm all that patient with people who say, I don't know where to go to get the best information because I think there's a lot of resources out there. Is the problem, I don't know how to put high quality information up against low quality information and how to discern between the two sources, how to figure that out? Well, I think that we have so many challenges right now because there are many channels of information that are purporting to be authorities on on the subject of of COVID-19. Initially, there was a lot of fear, and, um, and I think some of these patterns are, are deeply ingrained uh, in, in where people are seeking information and, and who they trust. Um, I think we are learning uh, during this pandemic response that it is extremely challenging to deal with some of the very basic psychology uh, mm-hmm. and um, sociology, uh, even more so than the medical science. And, and I, I believe we need to partner with experts who understand um, how group uh, behavior uh, is formed so that we can counter some of this um, phenomenon that is happening. I mean, the, the truth of it is that um, although it is uh, very deadly, uh, the, the nature of this virus is, is actually quite simple. And we have very basic prevention um, measures, including masking and hand washing and physical distancing that are quite effective. Um, and so when people are afraid, uh, they, they tend to seek magic bullet sorts of uh, mm. solutions to problems. Um, but, but the more we can spread the word that these very basic things and, and in Mark's story, um, you know, the first part of the story was about travel, international travel right now and, and becoming ill. And um, so I would like to see the conversation, you know, stay on the prevention even more uh, than than these, uh, you know, medications that are are quite harmful in some cases and certainly not helpful. Today, we've come back to a discussion that we've had a number of times over the course of the pandemic and then the vaccination programs. But uh, the need to do this again is pretty clear because there's a lot of misinformation and misunderstanding out there about how the virus spreads and what to do to prevent getting it, and now the transmissibility of the Delta variant and a lot of information about vaccines. So I'm curious about whether you're encountering information online about the virus or the vaccines that is confusing. We're going to talk about fertility. I think that's one of the places 
where you get a lot of misinformation and and, uh, confusing info on that. But are you encountering some people who are skeptical of the facts, openly resistant uh, to the vaccine, and you're worried about their health and you're worried about their well-being and you want to know how to have a conversation with them and where to point them for good information? That's what we're doing this hour. 651-227-6000-800-242-2828 on Twitter. At Carrie NPR, we've got Dr. Lisa Margakis. She is a, a physician and senior director of infection prevention at Johns Hopkins, and Professor Bertha Hidalgo, associate professor in the Department of Epidemiology at the University of Alabama at Birmingham, to Dan in Pine River. Hi, good morning, Dan. Glad you called. Hi, hi, Carrie. Uh, hey. Yeah, I'm glad I was able to get in. Mine kind of goes back to what you were just mentioning a little bit about the sociology. Uh, involved mm-hmm. in this. And uh, what this relates to is is one thing, normally, you know, on most of the call-ins and stuff, of course, because most people live in bigger city areas in Minnesota, or at least a lot of them that listen to NPR. Mm-hmm. Uh, one area I think we're kind of missing that is something we need to be thought about is those of us that live in rural areas. Our experience is somewhat different, uh, perhaps, than some of the more urban areas. Uh, as an example, you know, our population in our counties around 32, 33,000 people. And we've had 33 people who have died with, uh, you know, complications associated with COVID. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's one in a thousand. I live mm-hmm. in a town of a thousand. That means one person in my town of a thousand has died probably, maybe more than that, plus or minus. But in, in general, of COVID or something associated with COVID. Many people in my area just aren't this concerned about it because they figure a 99 and 10th percent chance that you're not going to die of COVID are pretty good odds. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And we don't see people up here being as serious about it. And I'm not saying they shouldn't be, but I'm just saying from a sociological standpoint, one of the reasons I think our county has something like a 47 percent vaccination rate is we've seen a lot more damage uh, from lost businesses, lost jobs, et cetera, than we have from the disease in our area. I know that's not true everywhere, but I think that's part of the problem in a lot of our rural areas. This isn't real close to us from that standpoint. We're not seeing that. I have one person I know of personally who's died associated with COVID, and they were in very poor health. And so it doesn't really area. seem they like an imminent California. threat. Yeah. So anyway. Yeah, it's a, it's a really good point, Dan. And I think that's one reason why we're having these issues in rural areas. I'm not sure it's not that people don't believe what they're hearing, but they're not it just seeing doesn't it feel present for them. Yeah. Professor Hidalgo, what do you do about that? And I have a feeling you will encounter that in your state, too, maybe outside of the cities. We um, have absolutely encountered that, Carrie, and and Dan is right. What I have learned, and I think others have as well, is that we have very binary thinking when it comes to SARS-CoV-2 and COVID-19. Death versus not death um, is the biggest one. And I think that people forget that infection with SARS-CoV-2 may not be asymptomatic in all individuals. It may lead someone to need to have to take five to 10 days off work, either because they are sick the entire time or because they have to quarantine. That has an effect on businesses too. I think what people also forget is that this is about the community. So 
if one out of 1,000 people fall uh, victim to uh, COVID-19, instead of thinking, gosh, well, just one person's going to die, why do we not think as a community we need to do everything possible to make sure that person doesn't die because we are all neighbors, right? Um, I think that um, what has been really perplexing to me about this pandemic is the individualistic take on health and that we are unwilling to protect others um, because we are slightly inconvenienced and or because the odds are in our favor. Mm -hmm. Uh, Dr. Maragakis, uh, I I was reading something from the Annenberg School at the University of Pennsylvania and some of the more recent surveys that they've done. And, And this is interesting about how it how conservative misinformation is connecting with perception of the threat of the disease, something Dan was talking about. And Kathleen Hall Jameson wrote about the poll, those who underestimate the lethality of COVID-19 or the safety of COVID-19 vaccinations are less likely to accept a COVID-19 vaccination. The same is true of those who believe COVID-19 conspiracy theories By contrast, those who trust health authorities are more likely to seek vaccination. Deceptive messages that undermine trust in a health expert, such as Dr. Fauci, are deeply worrisome. I mean, this is why I know both of you were talking about the sociology of this. But some of us look around and say this, these perceptions are so deeply ingrained. It is going to be hard in this moment to turn around years of the kind of mistrust that Kathleen Hall Jameson is talking about. Do you have some, do you have some insight on how to do that? Well, Carrie, I wish I had the answer uh, for how to do it. Um, But I I can say that uh, it's the broader challenge that I think we are facing in our country right now. Um, This sense of, of, that Dr. Hildago was talking about, about the sense of community, of responsibility to each other, um, and, um, and, and balancing that with a sense of individual rights, individual freedom. And, you know, I've been thinking a lot about this crisis, um, which poses a threat really to, to all of us for so many reasons. It's a health crisis, um, as Dan mentioned, it's an economic crisis. Uh, there's, there are a lot of challenges to it. Um, but when we face other challenges together uh, as a nation, whether it be uh, war, uh, whether it be natural disaster, uh, I've seen in other scenarios uh, that our country can come together and have that sense of community and helping out the neighbors um, putting in your own piece of the effort to make sure that six, that we're successful as a whole. And, and I think that's somewhat what, what you're hearing that we're missing right now. And um, if each individual is only thinking about their own risk, we're, we're missing the boat, particularly for infectious disease. Um, because we see now with the Delta variant, for instance, what happens when we collectively fail to stop a threat like a virus, um, that it, it is strengthening and becoming worse in some ways. And until we all respond together effectively, uh, all of us will remain at risk. 
call from Emily in Robbinsdale. Hi, Emily. Thanks so much for waiting. It sounds like you're coming at this from an interesting angle. Yeah, thank you. I think this plays off of of what was just discussed. Um, I'm a physician. I'm in occupational medicine. So part of what I do is uh, provide vaccines for employees. And I have a master's in public health. And my big frustration through this pandemic has been, you know, I've shared personal stories, you know, to friends of people I've known that have died or have spent long periods of time in the ICU. And uh, it doesn't seem like those are getting through and the compassion fatigue just astounds me. But the other thing that's missing from the public rhetoric is not just death, but disability. And Mm. I have patients with work-related exposures from nursing homes who have long-haul COVID syndrome. So one in a thousand people may die, but 10, you know, we don't know the rate of people who are going to be disabled by COVID long-term. And that just frightens me. And I wish that was part of the public rhetoric, especially from some of these conservative politicians who are just going, oh, well, people, not that many people die. That's not everything that is COVID. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Professor Hidalgo, I think you were also getting at this, this, and and Dr. Maragakis, this idea that we need to come at this in more of a community and less individualistic approach because the individual is not, you know, going to build towards herd immunity and is not going to protect your neighbors. Some of this, I think, is what. Emily is just describing. It's just, I've seen, I'm 18 months into this and I just can't be compassionate about this anymore. I'm exhausted. I don't know how you re reinvigorate that sense of, you know, common good and compa- that combination, right, of common good and compassion that will get more people over the, the finish line. Have you, th- have you thought about that? I I have given thought to that because we have seen examples of infection with COVID, either in individuals or families, uh, and and much like Dan actually alluded to, did not inform other people. You know, still sent their kids off to community activities. Um, maybe even are dealing with forms of long COVID and are unwilling to admit to friends and family that this is happening. There is an element, I think, of shame associated with getting infected um, and the repercussions that people think will um you know, will be placed upon them by others in society if they admit mm-hmm. that they got infected and had long COVID. On the other hand, you have people who will very proudly say, I got infected and I was totally fine. And so no one has to worry. <laughs> so you're dealing with really a dichotomy, I think, of messaging from the individuals who have had the experience. Um, But it's also confusing for the people that haven't yet been exposed. And um, I I, I don't know how we overcome that. I think that we have learned a lot from 
the HIV AIDS epidemic. Uh, Julia Marcus writes on this a lot, the element of shame and how we don't shame people into action. And, and that plays some role in how we aim to change behavior. Um, as Dr. Maragakis was saying, also, you know, some of these community efforts, I think, can help sort of bridge the gap between not only knowledge, but communication between community members. And I think we have a lot of infighting and, and a lot less conversation about how we arrive at a common place. I want to take a call here from Russ in Lakeville. Russ, you're asking about FDA authorization, and I'm really glad because I, I know this turns up in concerns from people. What are you interested in? Well, I'm fully vaccinated, but uh, a big obstacle, as you pointed out, is the idea that it's emergency use authorization, that it was created fast, and FDA has not approved it. So that's one argument floating out there. And so my question is, what if the FDA decides not to approve it? And if the chances of that are zero, then what's what are they waiting for? I mean, what could the FDA possibly have on their plate that they're so busy with that they wouldn't get to the approval of these drugs so, so they could get more people confident in taking them? Okay, really good questions. Dr. Maragakis, what is holding up the FDA and will it make a difference? So my understanding of the FDA situation is that they are working all hands on deck to um, get to full approval as soon as they possibly can, because they recognize what was just mentioned, that that will be a deciding factor for certain individuals in this country uh, who are waiting for that full approval. Um, Interestingly, the, the data around safety and efficacy of a vaccine um, has really already been uh, evaluated and is what led to the emergency use authorization. And so um, the additional steps that are occurring right now are really more about the entire uh, manufacturing process and all of the things that the FDA does when they work with a company uh, to give full approval to make sure that all of the good manufacturing processes are in place um, and that they can essentially sign off that uh, that they don't need to be as um, intimately involved in, in the oversight of all of those processes. So that's what's happening. That's what takes a longer time. Uh, but it is my understanding that um, Within the next uh, month or so, we can anticipate that we might see uh, full approval. Obviously, sooner would be better than than later, but um, but that is a very accelerated um, process compared to what normally happens. And Professor Hidalgo, do you think that is really going to make a a noticeable difference in vaccine uptake? Because you know, I question whether people understand what the difference is between FDA emergency authorization and what they're doing right now for full authorization. I mean, why will that give, you know, a critical mass of people that much more confidence? Or do you think it would? Uh, That's a good question, Carrie. I think that uh, we, ha- as I mentioned earlier, we have a, a portion of the population who has some hesitancy because they have some unanswered questions within that group. I think there are a number of people who do want full FDA approval before they will be willing to consider 
vaccination. Uh, then you have the other group that is vehemently against getting the vaccine, perhaps even, you know, donning on a mask, et cetera. And so I think mm-hmm. within the group that is uh, hesitant or has some hesitancy towards getting vaccinated, that there will be individuals for whom that full FDA approval will make a difference. I'm not convinced that the full FDA approval will shift and or convince the people that are just, you know, against it from the outset. Um, Mm -hmm. So I'm not sure it will make a big difference, but I think for some people it will be a, a game changer. Uh, We heard from Jessica on Twitter here, and I want to come back to this because she says, I'm going camping this weekend, and I expect to have a family argument about the vaccines. I need a pocket pamphlet with the facts that I can whip out. And Professor Hidalgo, the reason I wanted to come back to that is, you know, a lot of sociological research shows that putting facts up against um, people that hold misinformed views climate change, vaccines, you name it, does not work. So is this a case of uh, maybe where Jessica says, hey, ask your personal doctor about this or have a conversation with your minister? Um, Is this less about I'm just going to tell you how it is and maybe referring on to this is so important. I want you to do it because I love you, and I want you to go to some people you trust to hear information about it. H- how would you put it? You know, what we have seen in Alabama through some work that we have done in focus groups where we've brought mm-hmm. together groups of people to ask about uh, reasons they've heard about for not wanting to get the vaccine some people have said that their personal doctors and or ministers, pastors have advised them against getting it. Uh, And so the message that they should go to their personal doctor and or, you know, trusted source um, in their place of worship, I think can, can um, sort of reemphasize the concerns. Right. Exactly. And so, Um, What I have done with individuals that are hesitant and or don't flat out want to get the vaccine is have conversations about the relationship they have with me personally. And I think this is one way that this conversation can be addressed during this camping trip is that, you know, in order for some people to feel comfortable being around others, um, this needs to happen you know, vaccination Mm. or wearing a mask or distancing and that it's about caring for others and that it's about wanting to reinstate some of the normalcy that happened before we knew about SARS-CoV-2. And so I think it's more about personal relationships and um, showing people that you care for them and that it's not about telling them what you want them to do and forcing them to do something, but that it's about wanting to bring back the relationships and interactions that existed safely prior to knowing about this respiratory viral infection. A call here from Heidi in St. Paul. Good morning, Heidi. Thanks so much for waiting. Sure. Thank you. Um, 
I have a, a question around when the getting back to what you were just talking about, actually, when the doctor is the source of misinformation. I have some family members who live in another state um, who have been told by their, their physician that um, the idea that their daughter will become infertile if she gets the COVID vaccine, but also that there's a history of Lyme disease in some members of the family and that it's actually safer for them to um, come down with COVID um, than to get the vaccine, um, given that their history with Lyme disease. And these folks aren't religious. Um, we've tried to encourage them to see, to get a second opinion, which conversation, of course, did not go well um, because they, they really believe in this doctor. And so we are super worried about them and not sure where to go from here. Um, we've even gone as far as called their state's board of health about the doctor, but wow. haven't um, heard back from that board of health. Is this a, a family doctor, this physician? Yes. Do you know? He's yeah. a licensed wow. physician. He is full on doctor and um, he is telling them these things. And um, the Lyme disease was a really rough go for many years for them. And they really have put all of their faith in this person. And mm -hmm. this person's telling them not to get vaccinated. Boy, Dr. Maragakis, what do you do? Oh, my. Um, Heidi, this is a very, very tough problem and, and one which the medical community um, really, uh, you know, grieves over, I think, when we see a physician um, using their trusted voice to um, to further spread misinformation. Um, you know, this is... Um, seen in some other infectious diseases. And it's interesting that you mentioned Lyme disease because it, it is another infectious disease uh, around which there's a lot of misinformation. And quite frankly, many doctors who, um, who are spreading, continue to spread, and this has gone on for years, um, misinformation and, and unproven treatments uh, regarding Lyme disease. So I think it's a true challenge um, it's um, a, an even more extreme example of what we've been talking about today uh, in terms of trying to connect with these um, family members and uh, leverage your relationship with them. I think um, showing compassion, um, showing, as Dr. Hildago was uh, describing, your, that your care for them, uh, that you have their best interest at heart. Um, at the end of the day, it, it can be very, very difficult, if not impossible, to convince um, people to change their mind on these things. But I think you're doing all the right things by encouraging them to uh, seek a second opinion. And, and just, I, I guess I would just say that a lot of, of um, this, I believe, is driven by fear. Um, and mm -hmm. so in these conversations, the more we can recognize and empathize and show compassion for people's fears um, that have led them to come to some of these decisions, um, maybe that makes it a little bit easier to open the door for, for inserting some accurate information. We should, we should take on this fertility thing, Professor Hidalgo, straight on, because this keeps coming up. There is no science that supports the fact that vaccines affect in any way someone's fertility. Can you say more on that? Yes, I can. Uh, this is a, a rumor or myth that I have had to dispel for many months now, actually. 
Um, if I am not mistaken, this rumor began on a Reddit thread when uh-huh. someone said that the spike protein resembles the sensitin 1 protein within the placenta and that if one was vaccinated, the immune system would attack the placenta, cause uh, spontaneous abortions, um, and potentially lead to infertility. And then that has just sort of spiraled out of control. And um, it's really hard to explain to people, even, you know, people with a PhD like me, how immunology works and the fact that the immune system is, is um, not, it, it cannot, uh, you know, mistake one protein for another and that it's actually trained to only identify the spike protein from the SARS-CoV-2 virus when it enters your body and, you know, would, would not attack one's placenta. Um, and then co- having COVID actually, infection with SARS-CoV-2, we have some evidence that that may in fact affect fertility, especially for, for men. Um, and then it ha- and that women who are currently pregnant have severe adverse outcomes if they become infected with the virus and develop COVID-19, um, and that that's something to worry about. So the messaging, I think, becomes very convoluted, and it's very mm-hmm. difficult for people to understand that there are some effects, severe effects, that are due to the disease, and that what they're hearing about in terms of severe outcomes related to the disease, for some people, are framed and told as uh, it's actually the vaccine that's causing this. And I think that leads people to become very fearful, especially, I would say, women who are wanting to have babies or are currently pregnant or um, breastfe- breastfeeding because all they want to do is protect their baby, right, and or the ability to have a child. And it's a very stressful period as it is. And then to add the uncertainty that they feel um, relates to the COVID-19 vaccine can, can seem very scary. Um, but that's really where that rumor began was on some random Reddit thread uh, with someone saying that these two things seem wow. very similar and people should be worried. I, I'm really glad for the context. I had no idea where that had started. Sabine uh, asks on Twitter, when can we expect the Pfizer vaccine to be approved for children under 12 years old? Really worried about my 11-year-old going back to school. Sabine, I'll tell you that on Wednesday, we're going to talk about the Delta variant and vaccines and schools. So we'll have a lot of information about that on Wednesday. But Dr. Maragakis, what, what are you... What are you gathering about, uh, is it late fall for vaccinations for kids under 12? Is that how it's looking? That is what we have heard. And I, I hope, uh, as Sabine says, sooner rather than later, um, and, and certainly hope that we don't see further delays in approval for or authorization of these vaccines for children under 12 You know, I'm so glad that Sabine uh, raises this issue because when we were talking about acting as a community and protecting each other, uh, children under 12 are often left out of that conversation, but they've not yet had the opportunity to become vaccinated. 
And um, if if we have empathy for anyone uh, in this country, I, I would think it would be for protecting children. And so it is a reason uh, to continue our infection prevention measures uh, and and to get vaccinated uh, as soon as possible because uh, it protects not only yourself, but it protects those around you who are vulnerable. And that includes all of our children. Call here from Michael in St. Paul. Hi, Michael. Thanks so much for waiting. Hi. Hi. What, what did you want to add here to the discussion? Well, I'm wondering if we haven't made a grave error in just the messaging around the, we're calling them vaccines, but it really, from my perspective, should have been called a treatment because even these, the mRNA vaccines don't behave like a traditional vaccine that we've used historically, like people who have had a polio vaccine or a smallpox vaccine. You don't contract the the virus, period. Ah, Or breakthrough cases are incredibly rare. And here, they're quite common. But the... Well, no, wait, hold on. The breakthrough cases are not quite common. I I don't want to leave that. Yeah, they are pretty common. There's a small incidence of... Nope. We're going to we're going to talk about the facts and the numbers here. Professor Hidalgo, can you uh, can you speak to these breakthrough infections that are occurring after people get the vaccines, small incidents, but also to Michael's larger question on, you know, misunderstanding, I guess, the science of the vaccine. I've got a couple minutes left here. Yes, I think I think there is some misunderstanding about how the vaccine works. I think that people um, have some confusion about what the mRNA technology means. Uh, and so when when people hear vaccine, especially in the context of COVID-19, I think early on a lot of people thought that there would be a sort of this magical force field that would form around each individual that was vaccinated and the, the virus would just bounce off, you know, and there was no way the virus could enter one's body. And so the the communication was that the vaccine would prevent against severe illness, hospitalization, and death. And it is proven to do that. And so I think that um, the headlines about breakthrough infections um, need to be communicated in a way that say, look, the vaccine is working. If you become infected, you may be asymptomatic, you may be mildly symptomatic. They are protecting against the things we knew they would protect against, which is severe disease, hospitalization, and death. I thank you both very much. I'm sorry we have to end it. I know we have so many calls left and a lot more to talk about. Uh, Professor Hidalgo, Dr. Maragakis, thank you so much. Bertha Hidalgo, an associate professor in the Department of Epidemiology at the University of Alabama at Birmingham, and Dr. Lisa Maragakis, an associate professor of medicine and epidemiology, also senior director of infection prevention at Johns Hopkins in Baltimore. Again, on Wednesday, the Delta variant, vaccines and schools. We're within a couple of weeks of schools reopening. I know there's a lot of concern about that. We will talk about it for the hour on Wednesday at 9 a.m.
Programming is supported by the Minnesota Orchestra, nominated for Gramophone Magazine's 2021 Orchestra of the Year Award, one of classical music's most prestigious awards. Anyone can vote. More information at minnesotaorchestra.org. NPR News with Carrie Miller is produced by Kelly Gordon and Ariana Rosas. You can hear the show live at 9 a.m. weekdays on NPR News or by subscribing to the NPR News with Carrie Miller podcast. Thanks for listening.